Welcome to the official podcast of Harvest Bible Chapel Indy West. Our desire is to make authentic disciples of Christ who worship Him, walk with Him, and work for Him. You can find more information about Harvest by visiting our website at www.harvestindywest.org or by downloading our app from your app store. We pray today's podcast will encourage your pursuit of Jesus Christ. Sitting down, let's uh, grab our Bibles and let's turn to the truth of the living hope one and open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26. Uh, We're in the final three chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. We've been uh, actually on this journey now for six months. We're coming up to these final chapters and it gets intense and it gets awesome uh, in these final chapters chapters as we see Christ going to the cross. So today we're in Matthew 26 verses 1 through, 9, uh, 1 through 29. It's the gospel picture, the gospel picture. Uh, one of the things that I love about God's word is its consistent and continual use of picturing what the gospel is all about. And um, uh, three words that I'm kind of grabbing a hold today that that point us to the story of the gospel is the first word is rejection, uh, the second word is payment, and the third word is relationship. Uh, Rejection uh, is broken relationship, but the Lord has provided payment providing for us to have relationship back with them. We're going to work these out, and I think even uh, this idea is pictured in the movement of these verses that we have here and these events that we're reading about. As Christ, the ultimate payment is about to go to the cross. We see the story again and again. In fact, I think if you go all the way back to Adam and Eve, you see the story. You see the reality of of a a rejection. Uh, Adam and Eve rejected uh, wanting to live under God ways and out of that rejection uh, resulted in God actually providing a payment for that. In fact, in Genesis chapter 3, it tells us that there was a, 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 they were covered. Uh, that implies that there was an animal that was killed to be able to provide covering for Adam and Eve. Again, I think picturing of where the whole story that God uh, put in place from the beginning is going, and that ended up in bringing back, although relationship was broken and ultimately changed in certain aspects, it provided for ongoing relationship with God through that. We, we go to Abraham. We see Abraham, uh, Yahweh, provides, uh, as Abraham is getting ready to sacrifice his son Isaac, crazy, 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 and God in that moment provides a ram, by the way, a male lamb, a ram, to be able to step in the place as the payment uh, providing for the covenant relationship of God, if you will, to continue on uh, with its plans and purposes. We go to the Exodus event in Egypt, God's people in bondage, and yet God in this provides the payment through the, uh, the, the, the final plagues, the payment of an unblemished a male lamb that would be sacrificed, and, and we're going to reference later, and the blood of that sacrifice painted over the door frames of their houses, applied to their own homes, and then them 
hunkering down under that as God's judgment goes over, providing for continued relationship uh, with God in a unique way. And I think today our text, even in the, the events that are taking place, continue this idea of these three words of rejection, payment, and relationship. So let's begin with that. Let's pick up verses one and two. Bible's open. Ready to go? Here we go. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, all these sayings are referencing the Olivet Discourse, what we talked about last Sunday. Uh, if you have a red letter edition Bible, all the, the words that Jesus says are in red letters. You can look back, chapter 24, 25, there's a lot of red letters. After all of that, uh, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming uh, and the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite term uh, used for himself, referencing out of the Old Testament, uh, a term referencing himself as Messiah and yet the equal representative of mankind will be delivered up to be crucified. Uh, by the way, I emphasize that last word there because we can become so familiar with the story of the good news of Jesus Christ and the cross that's coming in the account of the gospel that we forget the, 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 the we lose sight of the dramatic statement of crucified. Back in that day, there were different ways for a person to die, natural death and so forth, but there was even different ways that people were put to death. Crucifixion was the pinnacle of the worst of all deaths. And the reason it was put as the pinnacle is because the Romans had made an art of death through crucifixion. And it was the kind of thing to where the person that was crucified was the kind of person that you don't ever want to be, you don't ever want to do what they did because it deserves this kind of punishment and there's no way anyone uh, that would ever in their right mind want to on their own be crucified. And yet Jesus makes a statement here that he is going to be crucified. And I'm telling you, when the disciples hear that in the context of the day, understanding was taking place because Jesus was not the first person crucified. There had been crucifixion taking place by the Romans over the years prior to this. People knew what crucifixion is. And when he said that he was going to be crucified, I'm telling you, it's just like the heiress sucked out of the room in their souls because that's the worst thing that could ever come upon a human being there and Jesus says he will be delivered up and be crucified one of the things too I just want to highlight about this is this is the now the fifth time as we've been going through the gospel of Matthew that we find that Jesus knew exactly what was going down before it went down say this how did he know he was going to be crucified there were all kinds of other deaths that could take place. How did he know? We've talked about this. We had a whole Sunday where that was the focus of it. And he knew. He knew. Friends, this is one of the things I love about the scriptures. One of the things that, about the scriptures that so stands out is God's word has provided for us prophecy about the Messiah, and it also has provided for us statements by the Messiah. And it is profound, and we often lose sight of it. Uh, what am I talking about? Well, if you've been around here for some years, you've probably heard me make reference to some statistician uh, work that was done on prophecies of Scripture. So let me just make mention of that again, because I think it's just so awesome. It doesn't matter how many times I hear this, I love this. And if you've never heard it, I hope you love this. Prophecies of Scripture. Uh, let's put a reference point. Um, there, there's been a a lottery winning that was like one and a half billion dollars. 
And the odds of winning that, it was said to be right around 302 million and one. The odds are pretty unlikely that you're the winner. Okay? Um, in that, uh, there are about 325, 330 million people in our country. So like one person out of our entire country is going to win that. And I understand that did happen. Uh, bless their hearts. <laughs> and they are not family. <laughs> In that, now, with that as a reference point, would we all agree that's quite a large odds? Now, let's go to this. Eight prophecies of the Old Testament. We were to pull together eight prophecies of the Old Testament. We were to take a look at those eight prophecies. What are the odds of one person being able to fulfill those eight prophecies of the Old Testament? The, 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 the probability is one in 10 to the 15th power. That's one with 15 zeros on it. One to the 10 to the 15th power, it's that number. It's way bigger than the whole lottery thing. That's eight prophecies in it. That would be equal to filling the state of Texas two feet deep with quarters, putting a mark on one quarter in the entire state, throwing that uh, quarter somewhere in the whole mix two feet deep of the entire state of Texas, and then sending a buddy out blindfolded and giving them one chance to go anywhere in the state of Texas out of two feet deep of quarters to grab a quarter and to try and find that marked quarter. The odd of that number is going out and on their very first try, blindfolded, they grab a hold of a quarter, and that's the one that has the mark on it. Pretty unlikely, agree? Now, listen, there were more than eight prophecies of the coming Messiah. Uh, let's say there were 48 prophecies. There are more than that, but let's go to 48 prophecies. The statistician work on that turns out to be it's 1 to 157th power. That's the odds of one person fulfilling 48 of the Old Testament prophecies that are given about the Messiah. What are the odds of that? Okay, uh, here's the odds of that. Uh, actually, some say that uh, in the known universe, there's 10 to the 80th power, but this is a bigger number, that almost twice that. But let's just say in the known universe, there are 10 to 157th power electrons in all the known universe. That's a conservative number for sure. And so in the known universe, there's a, uh, that number uh, up on the screen of electrons. Uh, you put, put you in a ship, uh, blindfold you, mark one electron, throw it out, allow it to mix up with all of the known universe. You go out and, and you get on the first try, blindfolded, reach out your rocket ship, grab one electron, pull it in and go, bam, I got the one that was marked. That's the odds of fulfilling 48 prophecies of the Messiah out of the Old Testament. Here's the cool thing. There are not 48 prophecies in the, uh, in the Old Testament. There are six times that. There are some 324 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament. And I'm telling you, friends, this is the kind of stuff that God's word provides for us in here that points us to this. It is impossible that anyone who would ever live would be able to fulfill all of those. Oh, but there has been one. And it is not by chance, it is not by luck, it is not by whim. It is by divine placement that the second person of the Trinity came fulfilling all of those. And here, I bring all that uh, because I just love that fact. <laughs> I bring all that also to point to add on top of that the, the, what the scripture tells us that is stated by Christ. And here, we've now seen five times he stated in advance that he knows exactly what's going to go down. And so someone may say, well, that's just human intuition. Well, that's just uh, good luck on their part. Yeah, get real. Seriously, get real. It's, it's, the odds are bigger than that that you saw on the screen. 
And this is our Lord. He is coming. He is here. And he's about to be crucified. And he just tells his disciples it's a couple days away from it. Stunning data and information that must grab your attention. Well, the story continues. Let's begin here with, I think here, what we see applauded rejection. Verses three through five, applauded rejection. So Jesus is telling his disciples what's going to go down. Verse 3, Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was what? Caiaphas. <laughs> I just wanted to see if you knew how to do the A-I-A. Uh, sorry. Whose name was Caiaphas. <laughs> and what are they doing? Here's the chief priests and the elders of the people, and they're plotting together. Got the picture? They're plotting together in order to arrest Jesus. I'm, I'm using the English Standard Version. I love, uh, love it. It says, arrest Jesus by stealth. Is that not like military cool? You know, so here's these guys, the chief priests and the elders of the people. They are like loaded in the stealth bomber, and they are trying to get under the radar to come and grab a hold of Jesus and take him out. Uh, that's what it says, by stealth and kill him. Uh, by the way, what Jesus just said right before that, they're in the process of doing. They don't even know what he knows. But they said, a uh, bunch of wimps, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Fear of man reigns. Fear of man reigns. So here they are in this whole situation that's going down, and they're conniving. They're trying to figure out what's taking place here. And by the way, can I say this before I or before we get too self-righteous and think they're so horrible, might I just kind of make, if I can, picture that what's going on there is so the picture of what goes on in your and my own heart, uh, day in and day out, where we by stealth try and plot against what God would have for us. It's called sin. We scheme and we work and we, we try and we even explain it away and, and all of that at times and yet uh, we're, we're sin stealth people as well, broken people, but I'll just say this, thank God that he's going to the cross for broken people like us. Applauded rejection. Let's just carry into the next event. Uh, I think here we see an extravagant payment. Again, a picture of what's going, all this moving to the cross, and yet it's picturing what's going on in the reality of the whole of the cross. Verse 6. Uh, now, when Jesus was at Bethany, Bethany is kind of outside suburbs of Jerusalem. It's, it's with that. Remember, it's Passover time. Uh, Jerusalem is absolutely jam-packed. People staying on the outside as well as the inside, just jam-packed. It's a buzz. This is the highlight time of the year. This is the Super Bowl moment uh, of religious uh, things taking place every year throughout Israel. Everybody's amped up about it. Everybody's pumped out up about it. This doesn't get any better than this. Now, when Jesus is at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper. By the way, it would have to be that Simon, uh, in, in the story there, there's clearly a story behind Simon. He could not be a leper now because if they stepped into the home of a leper, that would make them unclean to be able to participate in the Passover events. So I think it's really cool here. Matthew, who is a tax collector, who is a, uh, someone despised by the people, he just has this way of pointing out people who he can relate with he just points them out again. I think it's like, hey, man, this is my bro. 
And so here, this guy, Simon, who had struggled with leprosy, skin disease, uh, now he's in his home, and they go there. Uh, A woman came up to him uh, here in Matthew. I'm going to stay just with what Matthew says for the most part. I'm not going to go over to the other Gospels. I want to just stay highlighted. Uh, He doesn't tell us who this woman is. He's just going to leave it at that. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. Uh, Now know this, uh, as I understand it, and doing some more study on this this week, coming to find out that actually this event is not a crazy, uh, out-of-the-norm event. That that it was known that at times, if a very famous rabbi or person was coming to a home, it was known at times that that this rabbi, uh, they would do a a similar kind of thing. It was kind of a blessing upon. You're in our home, and and we're providing food for you, and we'd want to do it nice and provide, you know, just kind of a show our thankful. This was one of the ways it was done. So this was something in and of itself was not totally rare. But, But the item that's pointed out in the scripture about this that makes it unique is the expensive value of this. That, that's the highlight of it. In fact, we're going to see that because the disciples are around. They see this, verse 8, and when the disciples saw it, uh, they were indignant. I love that word, describing what's going on in their minds, saying, why this waste? Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. By the way, the other accounts do make reference to it that the value of this flask of oil, this uh, perfume, uh, we kind of think, you know, perfume, like, you know, however that's done. <laughs> you know, we, we think of the perfume thing where it's just like a little script, but th- these were kind of probably for uh, caring for the dead um, because the, even in the flask, the top would be broken off. And so it would usually be used at a single time as opposed to, you know, grab a, do a dab and smell nice type of a thing. And yet, so here they have this, this alabaster, and they're looking at it, and for some reason they know on this. Now, I'm not a perfume guy as far as knowing what perfumes cost. I've bought my wife perfume, and sometimes it's a little bit more expensive than I thought a a, a glass of water should be. Sorry, babe. <laughs> With that, but I will tell you what we learn in some of the other gospels that, that this was this ointment was about the value of what an what a common worker's entire annual salary was. So thus we see why the disciples. Oh, by the way, Matthew was one of them, and Matthew knew money. He's an IRS agent. And somehow they knew that this was like super expensive. And they are aghast, not at the fact, did you notice? Not at the fact that that this woman is doing this act. They are aghast at the fact of you're pouring out a salary on him. I get that. I mean, we understand finances. At least I hope we do. And in that, it's the type of thing where if you just see someone like pouring out an entire year's wages for you, you're like, what? You know, we could have done the same thing and accomplished the same objective just with like, I know how we work because I know how I work. And that's what's going on here. And then Jesus responds. But Jesus, aware of this, love it said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. The Lord has an entirely different accounting system than we do. 
For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. He knows what's coming. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And might I say this, 2,000 years later, it is. I want to note here that Jesus' response actually says nothing about the cost. Nothing about it. The Lord has a different accounting system. This isn't about uh, how many dollars and what those dollars could have been done with. There's something greater going on. By the way, I I am going to toss this out. Theologically, we don't know. I just want to say this right up front. But the way in all of the Gospels this account is stated, nowhere in the Gospel does it give the kind of grammar or statement that tells us that, that, that she absolutely did not know what she was doing. There, so I asked the question, did she actually know that she was pouring this out on the one who was about to die? Because could she have known? Well, we've already seen that there are uh, five times, but prior to right before this event, there are at least four times before what's so close to this that the disciples are being told about this. Uh, Is it possible that the disciples, because clearly this woman, I think from the other accounts, uh, is very close in the whole circle of things. Could it have been a conversation where uh, they have told and she heard uh, what Jesus had said, that he is going to die and he is going to be crucified in that, in those accounts? It very well could have been. By the way, could she have been the kind of woman that searches out the scriptures and comes to find out that, that the Old Testament even makes the declaration and, and the pointing to there is going to be a Messiah that's coming. Pretty much everybody knew that, but that that Messiah was going to suffer and die, like from Isaiah, like from the Psalms. Could she have known? She could have. We don't know, we're not told, but I will say this. Way to go, ladies. (laughs) Because I am telling you, this is a woman where it's possible that she could have known this because God had provided all the information for someone to know. But even if she didn't, the Lord is clearly using this to point to an incredible act of worship that even then, if she didn't know, that has meaning beyond what she even understands. And the Spirit of God has been working in her life to do something that is far beyond what she might even have an imagination of. By the way, this just her thing reminds me a bit of the widow's might. I mean, what an act of extravagant giving giving everything that she has out of her poverty. And the Lord Jesus is like, look, you see that? Now that's poured out. I think of Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 where he talks about the Macedonian believers. He tells how they give out of their poverty to help other believers uh, away from them. Not, Not out of their wealth, out of their poverty. That means like they don't have anything and they give out of what they don't have, kind of an idea. I mean, it's, it's so crazy th- that it's awesome. And they're giving out, I, I think of that, sharing extravagantly. And here this woman, I think this is, what a woman worshiping extravagantly. And I just, I want for us just to ask this question for a moment. Uh, does, does 
extravagant in, in our response to the Lord? Do we have moments of extravagant response, not for others to see, not for others to behold, not for others to go, you're awesome, but for God to end it? Because I will note this, these even items that I noted, it was not there every single day. It was not every single day that this was the story. These were moments in time in their lives that these were happening. And so I think if I were to say, hey, there should be an extravagant giving, extravagant sharing, extravagant worship every moment of every day, I actually think that's not fitting with the text of it. So I will say, are there moments in your life where there is such, you have allowed the Lord to move in you to where there's an extravagance in your response to him? That even potentially to the point where other people might be like, you are whacked. Just something to think about. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot. By the way, I, in all my life, I don't think I've ever met anyone named Judas. Names matter, don't they? He went to the chief priest. Remember the chief priest? Chief priests and the elders of the people that were over here. Stealth. How can we kill him? How can we kill him? He goes over to them. And he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? One of the unanswered questions in scriptures is what happened with Judas? What was going on there? Uh, Scriptures really never tell us the heart of what's going on in Judas. Clearly, this is a decision that he is making, yet in the sovereignty of God, as we move into that, into the text, both of those are, are, are working out, and he's responsible for his decision here. And what's going on, we don't quite know in it, but something's been happening in him. And then the text tells us, and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. I think it's really interesting that Matthew has that uh, pericope, that, that uh, story, that event right here, following almost immediately after the one prior, because 30 pieces of silver was actually not that much. 30 pieces of silver has a whole bunch of connotations. You go back to the Old Testament, and, and it's the amount that paid to release a, a slave. It, various kinds of things with that. But actually, 30 pieces of silver is not that much. Here you just have this lady seen over here. She's pouring out annual wage. He's over here selling Jesus out for, like, not much at all. It's an interesting movement in how Matthew is portraying what's going on. Verse 16, and from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. You see the ownness in it? He is seeking an opportunity to betray Jesus in this. Another plotted rejection. Verse 17, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, go into the city to a certain man, say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. Uh, So this is the next movement. They're preparing for the Passover meal. By the way, I'll just note this. You go read the other accounts that are given. Uh, Matthew, which is so Matthew. Matthew is just like condensed soup. He just condensed everything down and here he doesn't tell his details but I'll, I'll say this it's one more moment you go right by there and when you understand all the things that Jesus was saying he knew who was going to be where what was going to be where and he's telling them that's what's going to happen and they go and sure enough he's there it's there they say this and it all goes down how can he know that how can he do that it's cool verse 19 the disciples did as he directed them and they prepared the Passover meal 
Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. As they were eating, this is the Passover meal, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. <laughs> Talking about someone throwing in a conversation killer. <laughs> right? Here it's, you've got to understand at the Passover for Jews in this day, this was the highlight. They had every year this meal had been taking place. And the representation of all of what it means going back to the Exodus and why God put it in. I'll make reference to that here in just a little bit. But here Jesus comes in and wham, one of you are going to betray me. And, and they were sorrowful uh, for sure and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? I would be thinking that. Whoa, me? Matthew said that, implied. Verse 23, he answered, he who has dipped his hand into the dish with me will betray me. By the way, a little further study on that uh, here this week. Again, it was one of those moments where I'm not so sure. I think the typical idea when we read that is, is like everybody's, and then there's going to be one person who dips their hand in with it, and it's like, ah! I don't actually don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think Jesus is actually giving the idea because in the Passover and how this goes, understand, this meal has been going on for generations and generations and generations and there's a movement to it, a pattern to it and just a mojo to the whole thing. And so when, when this statement really, it's, I think it carries a connotation because everyone would be putting their bread in this. That's how it all went down. And so I think what he's reaffirming is, is no, so, someone here, Someone right here is partaking in this meal with what's going down. And then he says, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It will have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who, betray, who would betray him, Matthew gives us that information in advance, answered, is it I, Rabbi? By the way, there's an interesting thing some say, and I gotta be careful with, because I don't know for sure, but it is an interesting notation. Matthew uses a different word. Up here in verse 22, everyone asks, is it I, Lord? Is, is the original language kind of implied word from, and then Judas goes back to, is it I, Rabbi? There, there, I will say, in the, in the movement of everything, Lord is a higher term than Rabbi. I don't know what's happening with him, but I just note that. Is it I, Rabbi? And Jesus said to him, you have said so. Plotted rejection and extravagant payment. And then last year now, I think we see what I'm calling an atonement relationship, an atonement relationship. By the way, before I read, just definition on to atone or atonement the Hebrew word, because I'm kind of grabbing it out of the Hebrew because they didn't have the New Testament at this time. The Hebrew word for atonement is kafar. It carries this idea to cover or to be covered by. Really cool. Uh, here's a few passages out of the Old Testament. Uh, Psalm 65, 3. When iniquities prevail against me, you kafar, you atone for our transgressions. Leviticus 16. Leviticus is, numbers is filled with the idea of atonement. Leviticus 16.30, for on this day shall kafar, or shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Getting the idea of atonement. And then another one, last one, Leviticus 17.11, for the life of the flesh, and this is important, hear me on this, for the life of the flesh is in the blood. 
and I have given it for you back in Leviticus on the altar to make kafar, to make atonement for the souls. It's referring to the whole idea of the blood of the lamb in that day. For it is the blood that makes kafar. It is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Friends, the whole idea of Christ going to the cross and paying the price as a sacrificial lamb to bring and make atonement available is nothing new. It had been going on for centuries all the way back to the Pentateuch in the time of God's people there. And so here's this atonement relationship covered by the blood relationship. Let me read verses 26 to 29. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. Again, this is nothing new in the process. This is the Passover meal. He is, he is doing it as they would do it. They would break the bread. That's just what was happening in the Passover for centuries with it. But Jesus is clearly bringing a whole new meaning with it. After blessing it, he broke it, gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup. By the way, again, a cup. There are multiple cups in the process of the Passover. There's a blessing cup and so on and so forth. There are like five, six cup processes in this whole picturing and teaching what's going on. And so this idea of the bread, this idea of the cup is nothing new. But he takes a cup here in this situation. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood. And I remind you of what we just talked about with atonement from the Old Testament. That life is in the blood, and it's through the shedding of blood that atonement can be had. For this is my blood of the covenant. The other uh, gospels uh, make reference to the new covenant. This is, to say, this is something new. I'm, I don't have time today to spend on it, but, but something new is going on. Can I say this? There is something old about what is going on, but there is something very new about what is happening here. And Jesus is actually taking something that God had put in place way, way, way back, centuries and centuries early to the time post-Exodus, and, and God is now bringing it to the point to where Jesus here is, is making it something new. And he is not throwing it away, but he is clearly making it something new that is taking place here. Uh, a new covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. It's not only has a past basis, let me say it that way, it, it not only had a new meaning, but let me note this in the text. It has a future reality. We're going to take communion here in a little while together. Oh, what a great day to take it on when we're here in the text, right? Gee, how that works out. <laughs> we're so creative around here. Um, and fittingly so. And yet know this. When we take communion now, there is something about it that, friends, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, there is something about it that in the future it is going to rock the world unlike what even we can know now. By the way, um, as you probably know, there are some theological viewpoints that Jesus is actually making reference, that the bread is his literal body, that thing of communion is literal body, literal blood. That, that, that is just so, just so theologically off. Um, because if that's the case, then Jesus also is a gate, literally, and divine, literally. 
I mean, it's just historical, grammatical uh, interpretation, literal interpretation of the scriptures and understanding how it comes. He's using imagery that's been around for a long time to give them a picture of what's about to happen to them. And this is like, these guys' minds are blown. They don't get what's going down here. And yet he's giving them a picture that shortly in Acts, they're going to get and they're going to tie it to it, and they're going to see what's going on even though they don't get it right in this moment of it. And so here, the lamb is making the sacrifice of his blood and his body to provide for atonement. Before we take communion here, let me try and tie this to the old picture. In Exodus, in the 10th plague, God had told his people to uh, get a male lamb, unblemished male lamb, and to set it aside, to then sacrifice that, and then partake in that. And they were to take the blood of the lamb, and they were to paint it on the door frame of their houses, on the side and over the top. Now, it's not just knowing that that happened makes application. It's actually doing what you're told to do. There is an engagement. Okay, Lord, that's what you've done. That's what you've provided for. That's what you said. So I am going to choose to go and uh, have that, partake in that, and take and paint the blood on the doorframe of my house. Then what happens in Exodus after that? They are instructed to then go into their house, painting of the doorframe of the house, go into their house and hunker down under the blood of the lamb. And they're not to go out that night and, you know, go, go to a movie or go to a restaurant knowing that their house over there is painted on. No, no, they're to hunker down under the blood of the lamb. You see the picture? And then what happens, God is his judgment, flies over, flies over Egypt in that, bringing judgment. And all who have not applied the blood of a, a sacrificed lamb to the door frames of their house, their oldest son dies. And it is likely in the day and age, the way things were at that time, that people in that, as uh, particularly close into Egyptians, uh, because some Egyptians did this, we see that they come out of the Exodus as well, and yet those who did not, you surely heard some screams in Egypt that night. And can you imagine that moment? When you have painted the blood of your house and God's judgment comes over and you are hearing the screams of those who have not and you are hunkered down in your house under the blood of the lamb going, oh dear God, I pray this works. Right? That is what is called faith. I am trusting not that God, you are passing over and going, look at Doug. Oh, there's an awesome dude. I'm going to let him keep living. That's not what's going on. Oh God, I pray that the applied blood of the lamb to my house is the covering, the atonement, as you pass over in your judgment, and your blood covers me. And Jesus, oh, I just love that whole illustration. And Jesus in this, 
is using this breaking of bread and the passing of the cup to represent that. He is about to be the final unblemished sacrificial lamb who will give his body broken for sure and his blood poured out and all who would receive him to them who paint his blood over their house and remain in faith under that, carrying out the illustration, are covered. That's the gospel. That's what it's all about. And by the way, when we take communion here, but don't, 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 don't like uh, uh, turn and go like we're going on to the next segment of the time. No, no, the, the sermon continues right now. Right now in a communion time. And so with everything that we've just talked about in the picture down and it's here, I ask this. Uh, it begins by knowing what God has said about the provision of a sacrificial lamb made. But it is not just in the knowing about that one is saved. For as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who say, oh, what the Lord has done, and Lord, imagery, I picture, I paint the blood of the work of Christ over my home. And I remain in faith under it. What we're about to do and to take of some bread and cup, we're remembering that. If you don't know, I just want to so encourage you to talk with someone you know, someone around you. Come talk with me. Talk, talk with someone up front afterwards. Come and talk because, loved one, it's not just knowing about what God has done that covers. It's applying what God has made as a provision. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. For by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works 